Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Hey y'all, it's Caitlin. I just wanted to give you a quick update. So sadly, Lindsay has actually left CSIS. She's now pursuing emerging technology policymaking from a front seat inside the government. You can catch up with her on LinkedIn or Twitter. Now, because we have really busy schedules and so do our awesome guests, we actually pre-record a lot of these episodes. So if you hear Lindsay reference a project she's working on or a report she's doing for CSIS, just know that this could have been recorded a couple weeks ago. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSAS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Lindsay Shepard, a fellow with the International Security Program. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Program. On this week's episode, we are talking all things electromagnetic spectrum and electronic warfare joined by Todd Harrison and Whitney McNamara for a fantastic conversation I can't wait to share with y'all. Before we begin, I think we should just prep the audience. There's a couple of acronyms thrown in here. There's EMS, EMSO, and EW. Can you, Lindsay, describe the difference between them, what they kind of all stand for, how they relate? So we have first, EMS. This is not your emergency response service. This is the electromagnetic spectrum. So this is the spectrum of radiation that includes everything from visible light to radio waves to microwaves to x-rays to gamma rays. And it is all around us. It is increasingly a way in which we interact with systems and our environment. And it is... We're not going to get into the debate of whether or not it is a war-fighting domain. Not touching that one. Um, It is the topic of this podcast. It is the topic of this podcast. Whitney also calls it EMSO, the Electromagnetic Spectrum Operations. Yes. So EMSO or MSO is kind of an evolution from where we traditionally thought about electronic warfare. EW, another one of our acronyms. So electronic warfare is the use of the EMS for, we have kind of three different things. We have sense, attack, and protect. EA, ES, EP. EMSO has evolved to be more of a comprehensive term on just the broad use of the electromagnetic spectrum, as opposed to thinking about it as electronic warfare and that kind of subcomponent of EA, EP, ES. Because it's not just warfare, it's also how we communicate. Exactly. And so EW is the okay boomer of the acronyms, and MSO is the Gen Z. <laughs> yes. As we sit here in our millennial <laughs> chairs. Yes. JADC2, what is that? That is the Joint All Domain Command and Control. So this is the kind of next iteration of how we connect the variety of sensors and platforms to shooters. It is a program that is in development primarily across, I believe, the Army and the Air Force. And it's a bit of a contentious topic in defense circles. But the way that I have heard it explained that I think resonated best with me was not that all sensors and all shooters should be connected all the time, because that is a lot. That introduces a lot of dependencies and a lot of vulnerabilities. But it's the concept that all sensors and all shooters could be connected when they need to. Former Secretary Heather Wilson phrased it that way at a CSIS event. And that clicked with my brain as to, you know, what do we mean when we talk about connecting the variety of sensors in the military to the end user, the warfighter, the analyst, the whatnot. Lastly, IOT. So this is a civilian term. So we're going to shift to the civilian world here. It is the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things is the network of objects, software, technologies, systems that are all connected to each other and exchanging data. So think about how we have evolved to having our thermostats are now connected to the internet, which are connected to my phone because I can turn my nest on. 
Our refrigerators are connected to the internet. Our, our phones are connected to the internet. And so it is this phenomenon of the growing connectivity of most of the devices in our lives to the internet and to each other, which brings on its own host of just terrifying security challenges. And we've done some, some tabletop exercises on this at CSIS, and the outcomes are not great. Great way to start the discussion. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Tech Unmanned. Today, we are talking all about the electromagnetic spectrum and electronic warfare. So what is it? It's unseen to the eye, and it is likely taken for granted outside of the Old Crows community. So whether you're a civilian or you're in the military, you interact with the electromagnetic spectrum, or EMS, on a daily basis. So this is the radiation that includes radio waves, microwaves, and even that little chunk of visible light spectrum that we can see with our human eyes. To quote Love Actually, if you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that the EMS is all around. And given the increasing number of systems and actors operating in the EMS in both commercial and military applications, it is contested and congested. U.S. adversaries like Russia, China, and Iran are focusing on electronic warfare, and the U.S. is poised to advance its own electronic warfare capability. So here to talk about all of that with us are two just terrific guests. We are so delighted to welcome to the podcast Todd Harrison, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the director of the Aerospace Security Project. He's also Caitlin's boss. Hi, thanks for having me on. <laughs> and we are super delighted to have Whitney McNamara, a technology policy advisor at the Department of Defense. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So Whitney, you are going to get uh, the dreaded first question. Our first guest up always gets the hardest one. Can you give us an electronic warfare 101 overview? So what are we talking about when we're talking about these next generation capabilities? Yeah, absolutely. I think you guys are spot on when you say, right, the spectrum is unseen by the eye and taken for granted. And it seems like this intangible thing, which is why I think it's inherently challenging to explain to people all the ways we're reliant on it. And the military is no exception. So every modern weapon system from radios to satellites to ships and aircraft, right, they all depend on the spectrum to function. The spectrum underpins all of our second offset capabilities, right, from long range precision strike complex It underpins global GPS, command and control. And one of the military's greatest advantages over the last 20 years is its ability to kind of build this high fidelity operational picture quickly and be able to exploit it, right, evade enemies, coordinate operations accurately, quickly, target weapons. However, when people think of the spectrum, they typically think of it as this, you know, the narrow version of it, as a discrete capability, a tool in my toolkit, right, which is electronic warfare. I jam my enemy. And what distinguishes next generation capabilities from previous ones is one, how dynamic they are, and two, the part of the spectrum they rely on. So electronic attack, you know, historically, we think of that, we're talking about, you know, rate of frequency jamming, RF jamming. But now we can jam through high-powered microwaves, right, in the microwave part of the spectrum, and we can use other directed energy technologies. We now see communications done in the optical part of the spectrum, right, especially now in space. And the capabilities are also a lot more dynamic. So previously rigid capabilities are now cognitive, multifunction, they have systems that can jump frequency, bandwidth, and like many other technologies, you see systems going from hardware-based to software-based, which of course allows for a level of flexibility and agility. And also a lot of these technologies are scalable. So the same kind of laser that could blind or disrupt or deceive your sensor can also be powered up to damage or destroy it and cause like material damage. And so this is one of the reasons I think why one, we're talking more and more about, you know, the spectrum uh, and how the military is using it. And it's why you're also hearing the phrase MSO or electromagnetic spectrum operations versus electronic warfare, which is what we historically called it. And that's mostly a nod to the fact, you know, we're now using much larger swaths of the spectrum. And what it looks like to use the spectrum is just much more dynamic than it was previously. Woody, thank you. That was a great overview. I think you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe Todd, you can 
dive us even deeper on why the electromagnetic spectrum is often described as increasingly contested, congested. These are words we use a lot when we reference the spectrum in space. But can you talk a bit about the threats and why we're worried about denial of access? Yeah, no, I mean, to build on what Whitney said, I think that, you know, the EMS part of warfare is becoming more interesting and more active precisely because it's invisible, right? We're talking about fighting in ways that can't be seen. So there's a profound lack of public visibility in what's going on, which makes these very attractive weapons, especially if you want to operate in the gray zone. If you want to stay below the threshold of overt conflict, this is a good way to do it. Also, for a lot of different types of electronic attack, attribution can be difficult. Not impossible, but it might not be timely, and it might be difficult to prove it to others, to the public, to allies and to partners, where an attack came from and that it was deliberate. You know, there's a great example that we used in our annual space threat assessment that Caitlin is one of the co-authors of, of General Hyten back when he was the head of Air Force Space Command testifying to Congress, and he talked about all the different jamming incidents they experienced for military satellite communication systems that were friendly, that were just someone else in the military being on the wrong frequency or, or using the wrong transponder at the wrong time. So it can be difficult to distinguish in a timely manner between an attack in the electromagnetic spectrum that is intentional versus unintentional versus just natural you know, occurrences, natural interference. The other thing that I think uh, makes, you know, electronic attack uh, attractive is the reversibility, right? So many, but not all forms of electronic attack are reversible. You can turn it on and you can turn it off without doing permanent damage to the systems that you're attacking. So that makes it a great weapon if you want to escalate, but have an off ramp to quickly de-escalate without leaving, you know, lingering effects that could inhibit your ability to disengage from a conflict or prevent an adversary from disengaging. And so I think that that makes it, you know, a really interesting area of warfare and something that we see our adversaries, particularly Russia and China, really investing heavily in and fielding and operationalizing, you know, electronic attack systems that, you know, really go across all the domains of warfare. I'll just add in too, right? And Todd hits on what makes this so attractive, right? Electronic attack and other electronic measures, right? There's deniability. You can be on low scale. There's low attribution. And just for some more context, right? I'm telling you that the uh, military advantage for the past 20 plus years is this kind of you know billion dollar information complex that we have to build an operational picture. And if you're Russia and China looking at our you know technological edge, it makes sense that instead of trying to just receive, you know, parity in that, that you would kind of chip away at our reliance uh, on the spectrum or our reliance on these information capabilities, because it's clearly a point of weakness for us because we are so reliant on it. So it sounds like our systems are pretty vulnerable to disruption. And I know one example that I've heard a lot in this space is, you know, that contested EMS in Syria, where the U.S. was engaging with a variety of actors, uh, including Russia. And can either of you kind of uh, elaborate on that example a little bit to help me get that picture of what does that look like to be engaged, you know, in a contested EMS environment out in the field? So I'll start by saying, you know, on the capability front, we actually don't know how vulnerable our systems are because we don't have the metrics to test for that. And this is something that actually David Trumper at the Pentagon is currently sounding the alarm about. A large aspect of protecting our own systems and capabilities against electronic attack, besides training for it, is electronic protection. Uh, and that's kind of like an often ignored part of electronic warfare. It's the ability for radios and radars to keep functioning in the face of jamming or even, you know, as Todd was saying, friendly electromagnetic interference. But the effort to do this is still in its, you know, nascent stages. There was a mandate that says, you know, weapons programs need to start addressing how to incorporate electronic protection. There just hasn't really been a lot of enforcement on that mandate. And electronic 
protection, you know, isn't a weapon system itself. It's not a platform. It just has to be a feature or should be a feature um, of a lot of our other capabilities like navigation systems and space assets. So it's not the only capability vulnerability we have, but I definitely think it's an important one and something I don't think is socialized well enough. And many of our weapon systems were built with the implied assumption of a benign EMS environment where no one would be intentionally trying to disrupt you. And that is just not the case anymore. That's not a good assumption. Whether it's implicit or explicit, you have to build systems to be resilient and robust to survive the types of attacks that we're seeing. And, you know, there's some great examples in Chris Bros's book, A Kill Chain, of how Russia really effectively used different forms of electronic attack, electronic uh, warfare systems in its campaigns in the Ukraine, you know, in Crimea. So, you know, it's, this is not something that, you know, we're projecting is a threat in the future. It's a threat right now. And it's something we have to contend with. And to Todd's point about assuming a benign, you know, EMS environment, you know, when it comes to Russia and what we saw with Russian forces in Syria, you know, Russia has been able to take, you know, adequate capabilities, adequate EMS capabilities and use them to great effect. And that's in large part because they empower, you know, lower echelons of their force to experiment with them. But I think what we saw in Syria is more of of a reflection of our unpreparedness for how conflict is changing in the information space and our unpreparedness for how our adversaries are putting so much emphasis on the use of the spectrum versus a reflection of Russia being, you know, some demigod in electronic warfare. So Whitney, you mentioned this at the beginning and I wanna dive a bit deeper because I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. You said that the next generation of electronic warfare systems are going from analog to digital and they're cognitive words like adaptive, multifunctional, and integrated. What does all this mean? And, and how is it different from you know, how maybe we perceive the electromagnetic spectrum today? Sure. So, you know, a lot of systems typically would, you know, in the past operate in a fixed frequency. And if you think of the radio, right, the one radio station only works on, you know, 530 AM. The idea now being uh, that systems can jump frequency. Uh, whether to find available bandwidth, whether to avoid interference or jamming. Uh, We can amp the power up and down. So we're not only moving left or right on the spectrum, but we're also amping up power going up and down. Uh, We can change, you know, the modulation, you know, the hardware defined, the software defined, you know, rigid systems, obviously in the past, you know, did one thing and you are not going to teach them to do something different. Now we have systems that can learn in the field that can be, you know, reprogrammed, you know, communications and AM, FM radio, now we can communicate, you know, through microwave parts of the spectrum, through the optical parts of the spectrum, through lasers. So the systems not only are, you know, operating in different parts of the spectrum, they're just a lot more resilient and flexible in terms of what a kind of, you know, a radar or a communications box used to be able to do. And yeah, I would add to that, we're also getting better at using different parts of the spectrum that, you know, may have fewer threats may have less interference overall. So a good example of that is laser communications where, yeah, that's still part of the, you know, electromagnetic spectrum. It is just in a very, very, very higher frequency than in the radio part of the spectrum. And, you know, it gives you a lot of advantages, you know, that you've got a good, you know, direct point to point link with a very narrow beam that's going to be difficult for someone to interfere with without, you know, somehow getting close to one end of your link. The downside is it's not a broadcast. It's not a one-to-many type of link where you can, you know, like the GPS satellites, they spread a signal over the whole earth. You're not going to be doing something like that with LaserCom, but you can, you know, have a, a very secure, a much more secure link between two points and very high data rates that go with it. So quickly, when you kind of mentioned this and our listeners have heard this phrase before, as we've talked about other capabilities, swap, size, weight, and power. What are the trade-offs in the electromagnetic spectrum? You know, you describe ramping up a capability, but how does that shift the effects when you talk about size and weight versus ramping up maybe the power? Sure. So I think when we talk about directed energy, people are thinking of like the electromagnetic railgun, right? They're thinking of these like huge platforms that emit a ton of energy. 
And really, I think what we're envisioning is like this very low power laser, for example, that could fit on a UAV. And, you know, that UAV is probably going to have to get pretty close to its target, you know, given the low power. But again, this kind of gets to the whole, you know, network. So the low power laser on a UAV could get close to its target. But of course, because a lot of our spectrum systems would be attached to these kind of like disposable low cost systems, and that's something that we could risk. So I think people have a hard time understanding that directed energy can be kind of scaled down for tactical use. Well, and I just I just was thinking, like, when we talk about using a laser on Earth to affect a space system, you need a lot of power to get through the atmosphere, which means a laser, I mean, you're talking about big systems, heavy, using a lot of energy. If you could shrink that and put it on a satellite itself and somehow be able to to power it on a satellite, even though satellites really only use solar power to power onboard capabilities, that would be a pretty devastating weapon. Yeah, but you're still really far away. And so that's one of the trade-offs you make is the distance, the power, are you projecting in an omnidirectional, so you're projecting all around you versus in a directed way? Well, just to add to, I mean, we're, we're still talking about the application of electronic attack, but a, a large part of using the spectrum is to like deceive or disrupt your enemy's operational picture. And that doesn't always involve attack. It just means confusing their operational picture. So a laser might just be emitting to confuse them about what asset is there and how big is it. So it's not always, you know, for the purposes of degradation or, you know, to, you know, a lot of it too is just like, what are you putting on the, your adversary's operational picture to make you know, their lives more complicated. And that goes way beyond just, you know, methods of electronic attack. Got it. I think like most of our engineering focused podcasts have all come down to this concept of it depends. This is a really broad topic with a lot of different things we could talk about. So Todd, over to you. I was going to say it also depends on how much power do you need applied at the end, right? And if all you're trying to do is dazzle an optical sensor, that doesn't require a huge amount of power. I mean, order of magnitude, you've got to be a little brighter than whatever that sensor is trying to sense. If you're trying to actually do damage to the sensor, you know, permanent damage, then yes, you're going to have to jack up that power level. If you want to have thermal effects, then you're talking about much higher levels than that. And then, of course, you know, it all depends on how long you can keep it focused on a particular spot. Uh, If you've only got a split second that you can hit it, then you're going to have to use more power. If you can hold it, keep it on there for a long period of time, you could use a lower level of power and the effects would start to accumulate. But don't want to get too down in the weeds on that. But you're right. A lot of it depends on exactly what it is you're trying to do. Well, and I feel like we keep talking about the... I'm not sure negative is the right way to characterize it, but we keep talking about the attacks, what our adversaries are doing, but there are also a lot of benefits to using more of the electromagnetic spectrum. And Todd, I know you've been recently writing about battle networks, and this kind of plays into how we look at future communications. Can you give our audience a little update on that? Yeah. I mean, when you think about battle networks, you know, you're talking about all the things that go up to make that sensor to shooter kill chain close. And so the electromagnetic spectrum is a key part of sensing a lot of the sensors that we have, you know, active and passive radars, optical sensors, infrared sensors, they're all using different parts of the spectrum in order to gather information and then to communicate that information around the battle network. A lot of those communications are happening in the electromagnetic spectrum as well, whether it's radio frequency communications, laser comm, you know, all sorts of different frequency bands. But, you know, that that makes it a a key part of being able to close the sensor shooter kill chain. So then the next layer of that is battle networks don't exist in isolation. (laughs) We have our battle networks other adversaries, you know, have their battle networks and our battle networks actually fight each other. And part of modern warfare is not just being able to close your sensor to shooter kill chain. It's protecting your ability to do that, protecting your battle network and disrupting the other person's battle network at the same time. Right. So we are, you know, trying to not only protect our own systems, we are trying to go out and actively confuse, disable, degrade, 
our adversaries battle networks so that they won't even know what's coming. Well, and I'm going to take us in a totally different direction because we've talked about the role of the EMS in communications and battle networks, but I definitely can't let you guys leave before we talk about the role of commercial and commercial systems. And so, Whitney, I'd like to turn to you because at your time at CSBA, I know you conducted research on 5G and the commercial applications, and we'll certainly drop a link to that report and your work in our show notes. But from the commercial perspective, do the same things apply? Is it is it fair to think of the EMS as like a finite resource that underpins a variety of these technologies and capabilities? So I'll kind of answer this in two parts. One is, you know, the kinds of technologies that I am describing, right, these cognitive multifunction capabilities uh, meant for, you know, military purposes, they're actually currently, unfortunately, not in the hands of the warfighter. These are mostly just sitting, right, in industry. EMS capabilities face the same challenges as other emerging technologies, right, qualities that make a capability really exciting for R&D, make it really risky and cumbersome for an acquisition official to buy that system who you know, just needs to fill a very specific requirement. So in terms of the kind of like commercial sector technologies that are being used for military purposes, they're really just waiting for the demand signal from DOD and the services about what kind of technologies they need. And unfortunately, that's just not coming. And then you have the other part of it, right, is the commercial kind of uh, obsession with the spectrum as it relates to developments in 5G. So, you know, absolutely, I think of the spectrum as like this beachfront property, right? And even within that analogy, not all properties are created equally. Some have a bigger beach, you know, some have a better view of the sunset. So even within a finite resource, there are more attractive and in-demand areas. You know, and now that I've, you know, beaten that analogy to death, I'll just give you like a bit of an oversimplified history about how DOD and commercial sector have been working together or not working together in this area. So previously, the DOD and other national security organizations really had a lot of control over parts of the spectrum, especially the mid-band that's used for 5G. And over the years, the commercial sector would say, like, can we share? Can we negotiate? Let's talk about this. And DOD would basically say, no, no, you know, it's all very important. National security, national security, it's all very classified and kind of shush them away. But the economic benefits of rolling out commercial 5G became really hard to ignore, so the defense establishment's talking points of like, no, no, we need this. National security is no longer really flying. And under the Trump administration, we saw the White House say, look, you know, the spectrum is very important for military missions. Yes. But, you know, and I quote, they said you know, the military wins battles, but the economy wins wars. And we need to start figuring out how to build out 5G, which means, you know, negotiating with DOD about how we're going to share the spectrum. So there was some capitulation on the DOD side, but of course, this is going to be like a decades long battle to figure this out. And yeah, I would say in our lifetime, this is something that still needs to be figured out, not only from a technological standpoint, but also from a legal and regulatory standpoint as well. There's a lot of bodies in the private and public sector that have you know, a say in what happens with the spectrum. And if I could add to that, you're right. We have to think of, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum. It is a finite resource. It is a public resource. It's a resource that we only have limited control over. We can only regulate the use of the spectrum, you know, in the United States. Each and every country around the world regulates their own spectrum. And so, you know, while we have to deal with the balance between commercial interest and government military interest in sharing the spectrum and what level of risk of interference we're all, you know, comfortable with, every other country around the world is going to have to make the same kind of decisions. And there are some things, you know, for example, GPS, we are broadcasting that signal all around the world. And we never went out and asked for landing rights for our GPS signals in all these other countries. But, you know, it's a very low power level signal and it is beneficial. And so people don't tend to complain about it. But, you know, we're not the only ones that have GPS like constellations in space. And, you know, a lot of the other navigation systems that are up there, they're using very similar frequency bands. And so we do have to start to answer some of these tricky questions about how do we manage our spectrum and how does that work with the way others are managing their spectrum as well? I have a follow up. So this may be like just a layman's understanding, 
but anyone can use the spectrum. In the United States, we're trying to regulate that so there's not a lot of noise. I guess not anyone, but other countries, right? So if we're if all of these countries decide to start broadcasting in the same part of the spectrum, it becomes unusable, or is that wrong? <laughs> you can regulate it and use it insofar as it's in your territory, right? Okay. So if it's going into your territory, you can regulate it. Where we run into bigger problems is what about if you're radiating up into space? <laughs> right. And so then who regulates that? And the main body through which we, we regulate that now is the International Telecommunications Union. And they're trying to make sure that someone, you know, with a transmitter pointed up into space anywhere in the world, that they're not going to be interfering with others who are trying to use that spectrum in space. It's what makes kind of more manual spectrum reallocation so difficult, right? You're not just contending with frequency and power, but you're also dealing with geography. So like a mountainous area and a flat area would have like very different ways that the spectrum would react to the area. So you can't just copy and paste the same regulations. You know, just anecdotally, we've seen a lot of training ranges that want to practice electronic warfare. They've been told they can't do it on the range because, you know, it jams the 7-Eleven five miles down the road and they say, no, it doesn't. And even like everyone uses a different kind of spectrum engineering, you know, I don't know the right word, spectrum engineering formula, like model, I would say, to figure out like what is going to cause interference. And all those models will say something different anyway. So kind of like deconflicting even at the local level manually is extremely difficult. And I think that's why dynamic spectrum sharing is becoming a lot more attractive, although it's not without its own kind of challenges. You mentioned... Uh, dynamic spectrum allocation. And I know this has been talked about in concepts for 5G or potential 6G applications. So that's the the next generation of mobile telecommunications and really IoT when you think about things like smart warehousing and all of these devices really connected together. And it's the use of an emerging technology that we talked about earlier in the series, machine learning, to dynamically assess What's being used? What's the traffic on the spectrum? How do I most efficiently optimize and allocate the spectrum that I have available to use so that theoretically, instead of being a kind of first in, first out type of model, we're making a more optimal use of the spectrum to kind of maximize that use. And so it's a really neat nexus between we've already talked about AI and ML. We're talking to you guys about the electromagnetic spectrum. We have an episode on 5G and we have this kind of convergence of all of these technologies and all of these trends that are both relevant to national security and the Department of Defense, but but also commercial because 5G is really living out right now in commercial. Yeah, I will say there's been, I guess, maybe four DoD spectrum strategies in the past 10 years. And it's only this recent one that has made any mention of the fact that there is a commercial industry hoping to use the spectrum. So I think that definitely shows this kind of understanding of how much this space has changed. You know, dynamic spectric sharing is really exciting, but like most technologies, I feel like it solves one problem and just kind of starts a host of other problems that need to be solved. Of course, there's the obvious that's, you know, taken up a lot of time on the news recently, like these 5G supply chains, making sure that you don't have like counterfeit or untrusted components. But mostly what concerns me is like the host of cybersecurity challenges that come with that. If a 5G network is managed by software, like that adds a new layer of vulnerability. If a hacker can take control of like this network management software and 5G requires more bandwidth than previous you know, generations of wireless comms. And that also kind of expands on the attack surface. And you also have like risk at, I guess we would call risk at the edge, right? Vulnerabilities with the actual physical short range antennas that are being deployed in multiple areas to enable 5G. And to your point, Lindsay, you know, 5G hopefully is meant to facilitate the internet of things, which adds a ton of devices with very different levels of security onto one 5G network. And that obviously could lead to a lot of unintended kind of consequences. And I think that's a big part of the reason why DoD is still thinking through like whether it should own and operate its own 5G networks. And it's also thinking through like what kind of spectrum sharing solutions it should be using for its own purposes. You know, I, I would just want to underscore the point that when we think about the trade-offs, you know, between commercial civil uses of the electromagnetic spectrum and military uses, 
you know, the old way of thinking about it was that it was a zero sum proposition. If you took from the military to give to commercial, like it was, you know, zero sum. But in reality, what we're seeing today that it, it can be, if we do it properly, it can be a positive sum proposition where the military may give up some bandwidth to commercial, but then the military can come back and buy some of those commercial services and use them for military purposes. And so it may be able to build out capabilities, you know, or at least have access to capabilities that it would not otherwise be able to build on its own. I feel like we've kind of moved already into this last question that Lindsay and I usually ask about as experts in the field, what will you guys be watching for? Is it this shift towards commercial services? Is it an improved workforce and understanding, better authorities or even funding to invest in the EMS and, and electronic warfare more broadly? What is, you know, on your radar? How do you go first? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say one of the main things I'm, I'm looking for is a more deliberate strategy from DOD and the Intel community on how they will better leverage uh, commercial resources, you know, for communications, for sensing, for all sorts of things. But I think that, you know, leveraging commercial is going to be an increasingly important part of how we build and operate in the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, the other thing, you know, I'm watching for and kind of the flip side of it is the threat environment. Right. And so, you know, Caitlin, this is something that we track each year in the space threat assessment, you know, looking at the, you know, electronic forms of attack against our space systems. And it's just incredible amount of proliferation out there of different actors, some non-state actors that have relatively, you know, primitive jamming and sometimes more sophisticated spoofing capabilities. And so, you know, how is that threat environment going to evolve in the future? And, you know, when are we going to start to see a real increase in peacetime activities, you know, in terms of electronic attack, electronic warfare? I would say there's a few hurdles. One is I always come back to this training and experimentation aspect, which I think is so important to develop new concept operations and tactics and also helps with the demand signal that I talked about to determine what kind of spectrum technologies that the services would benefit from and would give them an advantage. You know, current, you know, joint exercises or even service level exercises can be pretty cumbersome and expensive. And a lot of our training ranges aren't even suited to simulate like what a contested information environment would look like anyway. So to me, the, the answer to that is a greater investment in synthetic training environments. We can provide some time and space for concept like innovation and evaluation. I think that would make a huge difference. On the capability front, I think a lot about high-powered microwave weapons. If for no other reason, then they're so hard to produce countermeasures against. So I think a lot of times we think of like how to procure them. I don't think we think a lot about how we would protect ourselves from them. And I think that's something that needs a little bit more time and attention. In terms of funding, we actually spent a pretty good amount of money on electronic warfare systems in the past 10 years, but a lot of that was just recapitalizing legacy systems. And despite so much having changed in this space technology-wise and how much Russia and China are prioritizing using this space, we're still not really using that money to invest in the types of capabilities that would give us an advantage there and definitely not a sustained advantage. And I don't think that's going to change until the importance of the spectrum gets elevated in the department. You know, to, to Todd's point about like a better coherent strategy with the department focus on JADC2, I think there's an opportunity to make the connection to decision makers like, OK, this is what you want. Well, we need to start thinking about spectrum technologies and their role and, and how they underpin JADC2. And in that sense, it might make it also feel less abstract and more relevant to what DOD is working towards. No, that's all excellent. And our, our last, last question, I want to give you guys the opportunity to have the final word. So is there anything that we did not touch on today, any upcoming work you'd like to highlight? Todd, being at a think tank, you know, what reports do you have in the queue that our audience should be keeping an eye out for or anything that you'd like to reemphasize for our audience before we, we call it a day? Yeah, you know, the other you know, related report I'm working on right now is the second part of the Battle Networks series of papers 
It's going to be looking at some, you know, some more of these issues, the operational, the policy, and the acquisition issues that are, are facing the military when it, it tries to build out that next generation of battle networks, you know, JADC2, as we call it. I guess I would just summarize by saying, you know, if we acknowledge that information is increasingly becoming the center of gravity in conflicts, and it, if we acknowledge that we're kind of witnessing this shift in warfare away from large-scale conflicts of attrition and ones that are more low intensity where information is potentially more important than mass, then to me, we have to acknowledge like the inherent role that the spectrum plays in that, right? It underpins all of our information capabilities, and we should be treating spectrum superiority as the precursor for all other military operations and start treating it as a strategic imperative. And we just need to make sure to wear our tinfoil hats. We'll get on that. We'll start branding our tech unmanned tinfoil hats in honor of our episode on the EMS. I like it. We'll we'll get right on our tech unmanned tinfoil hat swag for season two when Caitlin gets that going. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, it has been a wonderful discussion. So terrific to see both of you virtually. And I look forward to following up with you on this topic in the future. So this was a total blast from the past. And I, one, am such a big fan of Todd's research as our coworker at CSIS. I am such a big fan of Whitney's work when she was at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart because this was my first job. So when I graduated as a little baby engineer out of Georgia Tech, I went and worked on radio frequency and electronic warfare topics. And it was such a blast from the past to be able to talk about this. And it is within the national security DOD realm. It can be a niche topic. But it is one, as we talked about, that is all around us. It connects everything. And it is so incredibly important to the host of technologies and capabilities that we have today and has really been, I thought Whitney framed it incredibly well, our greatest advantage for 20 years. And we're just now having to think about what does it mean to be contested in this space? Yeah. And I love how you framed it of that it's kind of like the sneaky backbone right? Like it's something that has been our greatest advantage for 20 years, but is very niche, very wonky. Not a lot of people talk about it or worry about it. And so honestly, when we were looking for podcast guests, you know, a couple really stood out. But when we looked into DOD to find people working on this, it was much harder to find someone who specifically focused on MSO and could talk about it publicly. So it's something that is ubiquitous. It is foundational but is also either very tightly under wraps or maybe we are a little behind in thinking about the strategic implications and the security of our spectrum. But what I thought was actually really interesting was when we asked Whitney the budgetary question and she said counterintuitively that we're actually pretty well funded. And so that was a little bit counterintuitive to think about, you know, we're not talking about it. It is a kind of, you know, a niche community and professional society. And it is an area where if you think about, you know, what we consider the American way of war, we have stealth, we have intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, ISR, we have highly networked systems that all requires and relies on the electromagnetic spectrum and our dominance and assurance of the EMS. And as far as I understand, you know, operations in Syria were a real wake up call because that was the first time we as a nation were really facing a peer competitor that had been prioritizing development and deployment of systems and the EMS and could really hold our systems at risk. But we also talked about it's not just adversarial systems. It's part of the nature of the EMS is it is a finite resource. And when you're operating on one chunk of the spectrum and your systems are operating on another chunk of the spectrum, you have to pick and choose. And I remember really distinctly one of the big lessons learned early on in my career was hearing from the folks coming back from Afghanistan right when the IED problem was really, you know, coming to a head and we were having to figure out how do we deal with these improvised explosive devices that are being planted on roadsides that are being triggered by cell phone communications. And one of the ways you could do that was you would jam. So you would jam the signal and basically prevent the cell phone from connecting with the receiver to set off the IED. 
but you had to make a trade-off because if you jammed the cell phones that were triggering the IEDs, you were also jamming your own systems. And you had to make this trade-off in the field of how do I use this resource? Do I cut off my own communications for the sake of my safety or do I keep using my communications? Do I keep using that spectrum knowing that there's a risk? And so it really does become, it's a finite resource that we have to think about. How are we allocating effectively and optimizing? Uh, and jamming is something that we track a lot, as, as Todd mentioned, with our space threat assessment. So the work that we do looking at how the United States satellites are threatened. And jamming is one of the most worrisome, to me, worrisome technologies that is widely proliferated. So we have found both massive instances of jamming that affect either military exercises that are really targeted. Basically, jamming is you're communicating in a, in a frequency on the electromagnetic spectrum. To be able to jam, you throw up that similar or same frequency. You create a lot of noise, a lot of static. It's like when you turn on an old TV and you had all that like white noise stuff. It's like space balls. It's like space This balls. is a great way to think about it. You're, when they say, we've been jammed. So you jam the receiver. You essentially say, uh, I have a transmitter that's sending a signal. I have a receiver that's receiving it. I'm going to put enough power, enough signal in the receiver so that it cannot decipher that transmitted signal. So think about that scene in Spaceballs when they throw a giant jar of jam into their radar receiver. One of my favorite stories from real life is that uh, President Putin travels with a localized jammer that jams GPS communication signals in his area. He travels with this. It disrupts boats in the area if he's near the sea or it disrupts your Uber. If you decide to take an Uber near President Putin at the time, whether that's in the Kremlin or as he's traveling, and it's part of his personal protection. That's how important the electromagnetic spectrum is of being able to communicate. Also, it's a pretty nice way of, I mean, I'm sure they know where he is at all times, right? Yeah. But like, that's also a really nice way of broadcasting your location. So that's fair. I don't think it is all benefits. You see this like giant blackout of signal moving around an area. You're like, there he is. But I think, yeah, it was, yeah, the, the threats that we're talking about, you know, we've seen this a lot in jamming of civilian GPS and ha losing that connectivity Spoofing of signals has been a big issue for shipping and international shipping. Spoofing and is basically tricking the receiver into accepting a false signal. Yeah. So you're basically faking it to thinking that you've got the right one and to listen to your instructions versus somebody else's. And so I think one of the important things to remember that comes up all the time, especially when we're talking about GPS challenges, is you don't necessarily know when you're being spoofed or jammed. There's no light on your system that comes up and says we're being jammed. It kind of just looks like a drop in connectivity. And this was a big challenge going into a contested environment where suddenly your stuff isn't working the way it's supposed to, or you're not getting the signal you're supposed to. And you have to kind of think through, well, is it is it a challenge with my physical system, or is this a problem with me, or am I actively being interfered with by an adversarial actor? Well, and that's why right now the Department of Defense is investigating and, and putting some money into GPS alternatives, alternative ways of having that PNT positioning, navigation, timing signal that we are so reliant on for these contested environments where maybe we cannot either trust the GPS signal we're receiving or we just can't even get to it at all. Yeah, I was also a blaster in the past because that was my second job, was working on uh, what we call complementary position navigation and timing. It was this idea that we actually evolved from an alternative PNT to say, we're not going to get an alternative to GPS, but how can I bring together a complementary suite of technologies? But perhaps this is a season two discussion on mm. GPS specifically. I did really enjoy... Whitney's description of EMS as a beachfront when we start to think about how is the national security establishment having to learn to share this resource with a growing civilian capability and thinking through 
what systems are on what parts of the spectrum, what are vulnerable, what does it mean when we have other systems operating adjacent to. So a couple of years ago, we saw a big deal on how do we operate adjacent to GPS signals and what part of that spectrum can we allocate out and what parts of that spectrum can we not work in because it's going to interfere. Caitlin, you raised the point and then Todd made it that it's not just us. That internationally, different nations use the spectrum in different ways and that does also pose risk and opportunities for interference and things that are not necessarily aligned. And so it's not just this piece of the puzzle of how do we as the U.S. allocate our spectrum for both military applications and civilian applications. How do we keep track with what everybody else is doing? And this is maybe something that is a little off topic, but Todd, did, we did talk a bit about the I2U, the International Telecommunications Union. It's a big deal in space. They regulate spectrum and really the spectrum in geostationary orbit, which we have talked about before. We have. And what I love about the ITU is that it's extremely democratic. It is extremely democratic in that every nation has ITU access and they have part of the spectrum and part of at least geostationary orbit kind of reserved for them, whether or not they're in space at all, whether or not they have a single satellite. They have access and they have something reserved for them. Now they can then like go sell it or like basically rent it out, lease it. But it's not just the big nations that are super active in the spectrum and super active in space that are just claiming all of this kind of territory on the spectrum in this, as we've talked about before, this like highly valuable orbit in space. And so I love that this organization is so unique in the way that it was formed, that it actually gives access to all and kind of equal ish opportunity. Yeah. One other kind of analogy that we talked about that that kind of popped into my head as we were talking was just the evolution of the capability and the evolution, not just in the military sense, but in the commercial sense. So how many of our listeners remember having to physically tune your radio when you're turning that dial on your car, you're actually changing all of the hardware components in your car to receive a signal at a specific part of the spectrum. And that's all digital now. And now we're talking about how do you go from analog to digital, but how do you go from digital to adaptive and intelligent? The cognitive EW, and this is a big front that brings in not just electronic warfare and MSO, but how do you bring in artificial intelligence and machine learning to optimize and efficiently navigate along the spectrum. And this is a really cool area when you think about, you know, defense capabilities too, because when you're thinking about doing electronic warfare, you're having to recognize signals and signatures that you've seen before that have been programmed into your system. With cognitive EW, you can think about how about my system is adaptive in the field to threats I've never seen before. I can experience it identify it and adapt to it in real time, as opposed to having to, you know, recognize it, then program it into your system and say, okay, when I see X signature, I'm going to, you know, do Y thing. And so it really is this like cool evolution of the capability that brings in, you know, a few of the technologies we've talked about. It's really this convergence of a kind of traditional defense field with emerging technology to unlock a new capability. And I know we're going to get a lot more into this when we have our 5G episode. So stay tuned for that. Yes, absolutely. I look forward to it. As we wrap up this week's episode, I'd like to again thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of Tech Unmanned. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes, more about our guests, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TechUnmannedPod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We will see you in two weeks.